What is up? I am Evan Lovett, and welcome to my new podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett. This is an Odyssey original brought to you by my company, In a Minute Media, coming to you live from my studio in the heart of my favorite city in the world, Los Angeles, California. Let's get into it. Yo, episode number 18 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. You know exactly where we're coming from. The I Am Studios in the heart of Los Angeles. And by the way, 18 is a lucky number in the Jewish culture. It's pronounced chai and it means life. So good luck to everybody as we head into the rundown of this week's show. And it's a doozy, I'm telling you. We start with something that happened not necessarily in LA, but is so LA this week. The Owens Lake has water in it again for the first time in nearly 100 years. Now, what is the Owens Lake and why do we care about this lake that's 200 miles away? Well, the Owens Lake was LA's first real water source. And without the Owens Lake, there is no Los Angeles. I'll explain. Then I jump right in to if you're going to do one thing in LA this week, do this. It's one of the most unique and amazing art installations in the world which was created over the course of 33 years by a four foot 10 Italian immigrant with zero formal training. And he built 17 amazing structures with objects that he found while walking back and forth to work. This is truly incredible. And so is this episode. All right, y'all let's get into it. Okay, so something that happened in L.A. this week. Outside of L.A., but this is so Los Angeles. Let me give you the story on Owens Lake because it is everything to this city, our city. Again, this was the first external water source for Los Angeles. And well, everybody remembers their first. But listen, the truth is we had the L.A. River. But at the pace that Los Angeles was growing as we went from the 19th to the 20th century, the LA River wasn't going to sustain a city. Not only not like this, but the LA River was a water source for maybe 100,000 people. Let me, let me, let's go back to the Owens Lake and we'll get more into that. So the Owens Lake went dry in 1926 and it's full. Again, this is the story. This is what happened. For the first time since L.A. drained it over the course of about a decade while trying to quench the thirst of this burgeoning metropolis that we call Los Angeles. And now the images of this resurrected lake are incredible. I'm going to post the before and the after. I mean, they are literally incredible. This was a dry lake bed for almost 100 years. And it's something that people, really smart, geological, scientific people never thought could happen again without humongous intervention from humans. But it did. Because of these massive storms and the record snowpack and the runoff. I mean, again, this was recently, a a few years ago, last year, a dry lake bed. This is now 25 square miles of pure crystalline 
water. And this story is much deeper than that. And that's that Owens Lake. It's why Los Angeles exists. I got to dive into this history, okay? It all starts with a man named Mulholland. William Mulholland. You ever heard of him? Mulholland Drive? Mulholland Highway? Yeah. The city of LA is a rife with monuments to the man because of the accomplishment. What he did to bring water to Los Angeles from the Owens Lake. And now William Mulholland came to LA in the 1800s, mid-1800s, when it was a farming community, 10,000 people. And William Mulholland was this Irish immigrant. No formal training, no engineering training, just a very curious, intelligent guy. And he settled in Los Angeles like so many other explorers and wayward folks and outcasts. And when he arrived, the surface water from the LA River was enough for personal, for agricultural use, Rain season or dry season. And look, we've always had droughts. We've always had insane rain when it's a rainy season. There was enough to go around. But Mulholland grew as the city grew. And William Mulholland worked his way up in what was the forerunner to the Department of Water and Power. And as he worked his way up, the city was growing. And the city grew fast. Too fast. So by the turn of the 20th century, 100,000 people lived in the county. 10 times as many as when Mulholland arrived and nearly five times as many as two decades prior. And listen, LA is an arid coastal desert and we're susceptible to droughts as we all know too well. So this drought, these droughts at the turn of the century threatened the region's astounding growth simply put no water no los angeles so in 1904 as the city was bursting at the seams the board of water commissioners authorized william mulholland to find possible new water sources that would meet the city's needs and so he had the help of his former boss who happened to be the former mayor of los angeles fred eaton And with the help of Fred Eaton, Mulholland identified a potential solution in a lake located on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevadas in the Owens Valley. Okay, and now let me tell you something. The eastern Sierras, that's where my dad used to go to go fly fishing and go like hang out with his boys. He would disappear once a year. This is when I was growing up. He was a grown man, 30s, 40s. Once a year, he'd go up for a week and just disappear to the Eastern Sierras to go fly fishing and drink beer. And one year, he, he tore his ACL up there because he was being a monster on the uh, on some wet rocks and he fell. But but this is the Eastern Sierras. It's not close. It's not easily accessible even now. But William Mulholland identified it, the Sierra Nevadas, and he identified the Owens Lake full of water. And virtually untouched, except for the handful of farmers that use this abundant water source to irrigate their crops and let their farmland bloom. So Mulholland and his team of engineers estimated that the Owens River, which ran through the region, you know, Owens Lake, Owens River, could provide more than enough water to meet the needs of a growing Los Angeles. 
In fact, it had enough water for more than a million residents. It was perfect. But again, this problem, this teeny tiny problem, the Owens Lake was 200 miles away from downtown Los Angeles. How are you going to get water? At the turn of the 20th century, in the 1900s, cars were not even ubiquitous at this point. How are you going to get water? 200 miles. But this guy Mulholland, this self-trained, no formal engineering training, William Mulholland, he had ideas, man. This guy was intrepid. He was industrious. He was a genius. Okay, I'll just say it. So Mulholland planned to route the aqueduct from the Owens Lake straight into the San Fernando Valley. Woof. The 818, which of course was not the 818 at the time, but at the time it was an arid region of land near Los Angeles. But it was sparsely developed, except for the towns of San Fernando, which came together in 1874 because it had its own water source, by the way, and Lancashire, which became... North Hollywood, the San Fernando Valley was farmland, but not even particularly fertile farmland. I mean, you guys that know the valley, I know the valley, born and raised 818. It's dry and hot. I can't imagine a lot of farming, especially without an external water source. But Mulholland knew what he was doing. And so did Mr. Eaton. So they put this plan together. And as the plan was coming together, a syndicate, ooh, hot button word, right? Syndicate. Syndicate of LA businessmen started buying up acres of land in the San Fernando Valley. And now this dry land, I'm not going to say useless, but it wasn't the most you know valuable land. You can't even farm on it. This syndicate stood to gain tremendously once this aqueduct that was X amount of years in the future would provide water for this dry region. And now who was in this syndicate was a veritable who's who of Los Angeles in 1904. We're talking Harrison Gray Otis, the publisher of the LA times, his son-in-law, Harry Chandler, who ended up being more influential than Harrison Gray Otis. And those of you that don't understand the power of newspapers, shoot, up to the 21st century, to be honest with you, politicians, celebrities, religious folk, if you had the backing of the newspaper, specifically the LA Times, you had it made. So Harrison Gray Otis, some said was the most powerful person in Los Angeles, handed the reins to Harry Chandler when he was dying. Again, most powerful person in Los Angeles. Also in the syndicate, Moses Sherman of Sherman Oaks. That Moses Sherman. Now, Moses Sherman made his fortune because he was a railroad magnate, just like Henry Huntington, who was the ultimate railroad magnate responsible for making Los Angeles the mass transit capital of the world by the mid-1920s. But before that, he was building his empire. And if you don't know Henry Huntington... Huntington Library, Huntington Beach. I mean, these are extremely important people in Los Angeles. So by 1905, water in L.A. was an emergency. Again, you guys lived through the drought last year. This was last year before the rain that came in October. 
this drought was serious and it was an emergency. So just 1905, same thing, an emergency. So William Mulholland recommended to that board of water commissioners that the Owens Valley, specifically the Owens Lake, was the only viable source of supplemental water for Los Angeles's fast growing population. So the city, the powers that be in Los Angeles, submitted an application for rights of way across federal lands. And this is for the purpose of constructing that aqueduct. And Theodore Roosevelt, the president, Theodore Roosevelt, considered this a perfect example of his progressive agenda. So he approved it. And the plan was green lit. But now this project was not without controversy, okay? This was on a scale that had never been achieved. And this cost was outlandish. We are talking on par with the Panama Canal at this point. But with major help, I'm talking propaganda, if you will. A major push by Harrison Gray Otis, that man from the syndicate, his LA Times. Voters approved a $23 million bond issue. This is over a billion dollars in today's money for the construction, the beginning of the construction of the Los Angeles Owens Valley Aqueduct. So work began and the city of Los Angeles began to purchase private property and water rights in the southern part of the Owens Valley. So they could own the land. They could own that water that they were going to ship via the aqueduct. I mean, this was a huge project from a huge lake and 4,000 laborers were working at top speed using new technologies. This was the first time that Caterpillar tractors were utilized in any work in the, in the world. Again, this is the 1900s, the early 1900s. They were blasting through tunnels. I think it was 42 tunnels that they were blasting. They set records for miles tunneled for the length of pipe cut, the aqueduct channeled the water from the Owens River Valley through canals, pipes, tunnels, until it emerged in the spillway in the San Fernando Valley. That's right, that same San Fernando Valley that the syndicate owned all that land. I mean, I'll let you guys conjecture on that controversy there, but this this was a big deal for Los Angeles. And at the dedication ceremony on November 5th, 1913. Mulholland addressed a crowd of people. And this was a huge crowd. Water is coming to LA. We can be this world metropolis. And Mulholland famously declared, there it is. Take it. <laughs> One of the most understated and direct quotes and statements of all time. And at the time of this completion of the aqueduct, it was the world's longest 233 miles the largest single water project in the world. <laughs> this made Los Angeles, people. This, this is why Los Angeles exists. Thank you, Owens Lake. But not everybody was happy. This, this led to water wars. The construction of the LA Aqueduct eliminated the Owens Valley. It depleted the Owens Lake. The Owens Valley was no longer a viable farming community. And the Owens Lake ecosystem was destroyed. It was devastated. But again, down here in Los Angeles, between 1909 and 1928, LA grew from 61 square miles to 440 
square miles. 7X. The population grew from just over 100,000 to nearly a million people. 10X. And by the 1920s, as Los Angeles is growing in both size, population, and proportion of just public consciousness, Owens Valley residents grew angry and frustrated. They were tired of seeing their farms drained of water. Every drop which was pumped from that Owens Lake, from the Owens River Valley, was a drop that was not going to their farms. And it was going to the San Fernando Valley, which was just a mediocre farming area. So these water wars, and there will be an episode. There is an episode on water wars, but there will be a long-form YouTube episode of LA in a Minute on water wars. These were serious. 1924, 1927, 1928, protesters blew up parts of the aqueduct. This was a literally explosive chapter in the water wars. And this, this divided California, Southern and Northern. You had people on both sides on the North. They were like, you stole our water. You ravaged our communities on the South. They were like, yo, we need it. And they were pro and con. And it was, it was a war. It was a civil war in, in California. And then, 1928, Bowen's Lake dried up. And LA eventually needed to look for other water sources, which it did. Colorado River, I mean, Mono Lake, Crawley, Tahoe, all these, a lot of these are man-made lakes, reservoirs, etc. But despite the draining of this Owens Lake, it set the stage. It created a century of wild growth and the blossoming of Los Angeles. And now just to bring this back, this, this dry lake bed for nearly a hundred years in the Eastern Sierras, as of March 23, floodwaters pooled on the west side of the LA aqueduct. And the soil that supported this concrete channel collapsed three of the sections and the water ran downstream. <laughs> and that flood water joined with water from other sources and poured over the lake bed of Owens Lake. And little by little, a lot by a lot, you remember that rain. You've heard about that snowpack. The Owens Lake is a lake again, and it is full of water. And this is... Not just a time capsule. This is an amazing Los Angeles story that happened 200 miles away. Unbelievable. Now, if you're going to do one thing in LA this week, do this. Go to the Watts Towers. A collection of 17 interconnected sculptures. They're all towers. Architectural structures individual structures, sculptures, and mosaics. And these are all within the site of the creator, the artist's original residential property in Watts. And I had always heard of the Watts Towers. I'm like, man, I don't get down to Watts too often. I travel the city, north, south, east, west, 
but man, I have to see this in person. And let me tell you, I'm going to be honest with you. You could see the video doesn't even do it justice, but it's still amazing. It's part of my language. Fucking awesome. It is incredible and you need to see it. But what's even cooler is just this story of how this came to be, especially once you see it, you're like, what? Listen, listen, listen. So this entire site, and it's awesome. It's awesome. It was designed and built solely by one man, Sabado, also known as Simon or Sam Rodia, commonly known as Simon Rodia. And he was an Italian immigrant construction worker and tile mason. And he built it over the course of 33 years. From 1921 to 1954, this was this man's life work. And now these towers, they're no joke. This ain't 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet. The tallest tower is at 99 and one half feet. And he built this himself. Okay, one man from the 1920s to 1950s. And this dude, Simon Rodia, he was four foot 10. He was a fan of opera. He hated the Catholic church and he was an alcoholic who became sober and he started the towers soon as he quit drinking. But man, it, listen, he built these towers and you see the watch. I, I will post this. These are amazing. He built these towers by hand alone, without machine tools, without nails, without scaffolding, without even written plans. What he would do, he laid out most of the elements that he needed on the ground and he'd carry them up in buckets. I'm talking tile, glass, metals, springs. I mean, screws, nails. It's crazy. He carried them up in buckets along with his tools and he assembled them in place. He, he built the towers ad hoc on site. He didn't even have a drill. He didn't have bolts to hold together the pieces of steel that he used. And when you see this, you're going to be like, how? How, Sway? <laughs> he called the project Nuestro Pueblo, which means our town in English. And perhaps this was a nod to his neighbors. This was a mixed community, even back then. Latino, white, Japanese, black, Watts. Very diverse, Los Angeles. And the thing was, why? Why, Simon Rodia? Why are you doing this? Why are you building this? Every time he was asked what it was about, he didn't give the same answer. He never gave the same answer twice. <laughs> and then in 1955, after 34 years, 17 structures... These things are jaw-dropping. He bolted to Martinez, California. Never to see his creation again. And he never even told people he's leaving. He just left. He was like, yo, peace. I'm out. These are good. Yo, enjoy them. But this was LA. And to this day, as we all know, Los Angeles does not celebrate its past. It's the city of the future. That's why we're here, LA, in a minute and in a minute to celebrate that past. But Los Angeles doesn't, as a rule of thumb. So within a couple years, the LA City Department of Building and Safety sought to condemn the towers. <laughs> Party poopers. 
saying they were a safety hazard. To who? I don't know. They were on the dude's property. Nobody was living there. But that's how the L.A. City Department and Building and Safety rolled back then. So some industrious neighborhood folk coalesced and they, they started a preservation effort. So by 1959, two young men, an actor named Nicholas King and a film editor named William Cartwright, they put together $3,000. I mean, this is like some pre, some proto GoFundMe, right? They, they put together $3,000 and they bought the property with the specific intent of preserving the what would become known as the Watts Towers, these towers. And they donated the land that they wished to preserve to this newly formed committee for Simon Rodia's towers in Watts. And now they were doing this. The community was behind this. People saw, artists saw how amazing this was. I mean, this, the tallest tower is 10 stories high. This dude built it without a drill, without tools. Come on, people. This is amazing. But by the late 1950s, LA City officials decided the structures were unsafe and they ordered them demolished. Come on. As an LA guy, like, come on. And the LA art community mobilized. And they, they tried to save them. And somehow officials, they found a loophole where they convinced officials that if you say they're unsafe, well, you have to perform a stress test, right? This is 1959. So I guess they hired some good attorney who found the legal loophole. And they're like, yo, you can't demolish them without at least a stress test that proves that they're unsafe. So a steel cable was attached to each tower by the city and connected to a crane that exerted 10,000 pounds of lateral force, 10,000 pounds on each of these towers. And the towers didn't budge. These towers, that four foot 10 Simon Rodia with no drill, no bolts, no special tools built by hand over 30 plus years. These towers did not budge with 10,000 pounds of force. So the city was forced to declare that the Watts Towers were structurally sound and they had to lift the demolition order. And now today, the towers are protect, protected. They're a state park and they're under conservation through a city contract with the LA County Museum of Art, LACMA. And now I went, there was some scaffolding there. There's a LACMA-led team of conservators that is sealing in the cracks and cement and reinforcing the, the steel infrastructure of the towers but man this thing is nothing short of a miracle a quote a thing like that the watts towers happens once in a million years and a bonus right next door is an art center the watts towers art center and nipsey hustle la legend former rapper philanthropist activist he took music classes at the art center as a teenager. And it's said that that was one of his main influences for his work and what inspired him to accomplish everything that he did in the community. 
So after Nipsey Hussle's unfortunate death in 2019 at age 33, neighbors built an altar at the Watts Towers to Nipsey Hussle. And that's just another side bonus. But that is one thing that you need to do in LA this week. It's amazing. That is our show. Lucky number 18. Pretty dope episode of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. I hope you enjoyed it. Send me a DM with your feedback, thoughts, and advice, especially on that therapy session. Please click the five-star rating. It'll take you, honestly, three seconds to do that. And if you enjoyed it and you have 15 seconds, leave a review. That helps so much on the algorithm. We continue to stay near the top of the charts in places and travel, but let's get there for culture. We've been there, but let's keep it going. So give me a rating, give me a review, share it with your friends. I appreciate you so much. Every single review, rating, and listen helps. All right, y'all, it's been a minute.